Hey, everybody, I'm Tom Corbett. And I'm Justin St. Louis. And this is Uncommon Deeds. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Uncommon Deeds. And you what can't the hell are you doing to me? <laughs> I didn't tell uh, Justin no. that I was hitting the airplane to kick this one off. I saved God. it as a surprise. And, and just five minutes ago, before we started recording this, I messaged Jeremy. Jeremy Carpenter is our tech guy at Devil's Bowl, and he said we have... So we have a rule change that we need to make for modifieds. And I said, and then I messaged him, modifieds. What is it? And then I messaged him again. It's a race car with no with no fenders. It goes around a dirt track. And then Leslie Nielsen. So uh, that's just perfect. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. And uh, there's a little connection. Yeah, <laughs> I picked up on it to uh, to today's guest, the great Shirley Muldowney. And this one was a big one for us, and it was great conversation. And it just like a lot of our guests, just you were willing to reach out and found a email for like her publicist. And yeah, this one though took us a good month. I stalked actually, them for a while. Yeah, to actually set up a time, and then it looked like we had a time, and then her tech guy was going out of town. She didn't want to take the chance at not being able to to work the Zoom. Well, and we actually had uh, – there were two podcasts, us and somebody, I don't know who else, competing for her love at the same time. And uh, I called her to set up the appointment, and she goes, yeah, I waited all day for you, and you never called. And I was like, hmm? And – Turns out there was another podcast that she was supposed to record with that day, like an hour before I called her to, to confirm the time. So she's, she's in high demand. And, um, and hey, in that pod, <laughs> in that podcast that stood her up, you suck. Yeah, you suck. We don't suck. How dare you? How dare you, Shirley Muldowney? How dare, how dare you stand she up? She is a Shirley great Muldowney. lady. There's nowhere to go but down for us, right? <laughs> At this point, apologies to all future guests, but here's Shirley, way up here. <laughs> yeah. She lived up to the hype. She came oh. in uh, with no Fs to give. Yeah. And she shot it straight for whatever it was, an hour and a half with us. Yeah. Took a few shots here and there. You know, and I think that that's, sort of uh, uh, a trademark of her career. She, she never pulled any punches and I think she had to be that way because she was a woman in a very macho sport in a very macho time. And she kicked everybody's asses regularly. I mean, not just once or twice a, a year, it was every week. So good for her. <laughs> you know, like she, she has lived her life where she's got to stand her ground. Um, and you know, we got, we got every part of that. Uh, it's just, damn, it's a good, it's, it's a good interview. And nothing was off limits. No, ask whatever we wanted. And one thing I wanted to mention is 
we got into her son to a certain degree mm-hmm. um, and mentioned that he had passed away in 2017, but we didn't really get into it. And her son died of blood clots. Yep. John Muldowney. And she mentioned um, uh, he was a big drinker and there might've been other things that, <laughs> that compounded to, to the blood clots, but we didn't feel it necessary to, to go down that path. She kind of brought it up on her own a little bit, but we didn't want to continue pushing that way. Cause we didn't. Well, and she has just lost a sister too. Um, it actually, that was part of the delay in, in getting the interview with her. Um, and I don't believe that we did mention that, but you know, our, obviously our condolences to her and, um, but her son, John was a huge, huge part of her, her life, not her career, her life, um, in every aspect. And, uh, he was, you know, right by her side, working on the race car every day of his life from the, the well, listen, there's the, the movie heart, like a wheel, and you can go, it's on YouTube, go ahead and, and watch it. You can pause, you can pause the podcast right now and go, go watch. Or you can listen later, whatever. Well, how about um, listen to us first? Then yeah, listen to us later. first. Yeah, we're, we're better. But, you know, uh, the, the story is, is Shirley and her son, John, you know, forever. And um, it, it hurts, you know, obviously. And you can um, hear it hear it in her voice when she talks about it. It's still, yeah. you know, whatever, four years later, but it's still right there. Well, it's, a parent shouldn't have to bury a child. Um especially one that is your teammate, you know, and your best friend and has traveled the country and the world with you. Um, so that was a, you know, that is um, still very much a, a very central part of, of Shirley Muldowney's life is the hole that, that her son has left. And that's sad, but I also think that she's got so many, amazing memories um and had um has had an amazing career in part because of him yeah and um, really talented fabricator and, and mechanic and just like i doing. said we didn't delve deep into it yeah but i'm glad it came up and you can hear it in her voice like i mentioned and it just humanizes a larger than life persona yeah i think honestly the thing that really nailed this interview down was when I called Shirley to set up the, the time finally got finally got in touch with her through her her publicist um, 802 came up on her caller ID and it said Burlington Vermont and she, I don't think that she was aware that you know this podcast is based in Vermont and she answered the phone and she says hello this is Shirley who's this and I said hi my name is Justin uh, blah 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 uncommon deeds i said and she goes you're calling me from burlington vermont i'm from there i was born there did you know that and i was like that's the reason why we're calling surely i was like uh you know not only because of who you are but where you come from um and i think that she was so uh i don't know that she's done really any interviews about where she's from in a long long time the free press used to cover it back in the 70s and 80s but that was 30, 40, 50 years ago at this point. Um, and I think this really meant a lot to her to talk about Lake Champlain and the islands and Milton Dragway and stuff. It was, that was cool for us to really get that from her. Yeah. And I, sometimes we talk to people, not necessarily 
the guests we've had on to this point, but we talk to people who maybe grew up in Vermont and have moved on since and they'll be like, yeah, I started there and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Like they don't talk about it. They don't really care to talk about it. And you could tell she still had a lot of love for the area she grew up in. And she was only here till she was, you know, 14. Yeah. And there's, there's a part at, right at the end of the interview and I won't spoil it, but it, it comes full circle. Um, and it's really, yeah, she, she really loves this place. This is a good one. I hope you guys enjoy it and, uh, we'll catch up with you and I haven't finished editing it. I think it's somewhere around an hour and a half <laughs> on the, uh, on the close side. But until then it is now time for Justin to introduce today's guest. Well, we've been setting the bar higher and higher every show it seems. And uh, I don't know that we're going to be able to top this one, to be honest with you. Um, a Vermont native uh, who has become a global household name, three-time NHRA world champion. I don't have to say anything else. Shirley Muldowney, welcome to Uncommon Deeds. Thank you. Delighted uh, it's a, to be it's here. It's a pleasure. You. you know, it. Uh, it's a thrill to be able to talk to you, but it's something that I think that we really wanted to get out there is, you know, we're a Vermont based show and so many people don't realize you are a Vermont based race car driver. A lot of people aren't aware that, uh, you know, I, I come from the, it's so close to the Canadian border. Uh, I could, I could sit on the rocks down at Lake Champlain and smoke my aunt's cigarettes and look across the lake and see Plattsburgh. Uh, you know, I just, I loved it up there. I spent, and then to hear that most of that wonderful land is now condos or something close was very disappointing. Mm-hmm. Broke my heart when I heard that. It's happening everywhere up here. We can't escape it, but I guess that's everywhere, isn't it? Terrible. Well, my, my aunt and uncle owned a quarter of a mile of lakeshore land on the south, south shore. Would that be the, it's near uh, where the ferry comes in. You're in South Hero. South Hero. Yes. Yeah. That's a gorgeous section of the world. And uh, we kind of want to hear about that a little bit. That's, that's where you spent your formative years on the farm up there. It's how I learned how to drive a John Deere tractor. The first thing I ever drove in my life, little did I know, you know, what that, my, my uncle really, uh, uh, he gave me, a shot at driving the tractor and I even pulled the manure loader and, uh, and enriched the soil. And uh, I did quite a bit for a young kid, uh, all for a chance to ride to the creamery at six in the morning because of the ice cream. The, the That's ice the reward out of this world. A lot of those little things that you get to do around here that other places don't. I remember it was the same, like first thing I ever drove was my, grandfather's John Deere lawnmower and I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't reach the brake. So he would sit and he'd put it in gear and then he'd let me go and I would do the lawn and he would just say, if you need to stop for anything, just hop off the seat and it'll turn off because I couldn't reach the brake. Really? Yep. <laughs> I'm guessing they didn't have that feature on your, on the tractors you were driving. Shirley. No, you know, I don't remember because it was <laughs> 70 years ago. Hmm. When I I was ten when I drove the tractor, uh, it's a lot you know long ago, and uh, you know those were some of the happiest days of my life that I spent up there. Well, so, the, 
swimming in Lake Champlain and um, down around the corner, which was the point there, uh, very wealthy people lived. Rollard was their last name. And they lived there in their summer home and they had pet peacocks. All of and I chased the hell out of them trying to get some feathers. I, I when I was a kid, I didn't pay attention as much as I should have. But you know, the, again, those were. And then I got to pick picking strawberries was a breeze. Picking beans was hell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But I know what a eighty pound bale of hay was back then at that uh, time, and. Uh, Again, uh, they didn't have any horses. Of course, I was horse crazy and uh, cows. And, of course, he had about 40. I knew they were all Holstein. I knew every single cow, the individual, you know, the markings. Everyone had a name. Uh, It was, uh, you know, it was my life. And when my father would come and pick me up, it was was like D-Day. Hated it. Go back down to Schenectady. Well, and... and I did want to ask you about your father because it sounds like he was a pretty interesting character as well. He um, was a character. Went by the name of Tex and uh, was That's in right. Tex, Tex Rocky in the original Western Ridge Runners, a, a, a band. That's right. How did you, you did your homework? We you? try. We try here. Whoa. Yeah. yeah he was, uh, he also won the Golden Globe in a, in a, um, a st- it wasn't a stadium, sort of like a, I don't know what you would call it, but it was the Ethan Allen where people would go and and celebrate the you know the summer months and it was quite a place and of course they had a ring there and that's where he would prize fight. He was a boxer. Uh, he was a boxer, and he was he he was six two at uh, two fifty big big man, uh, but he was uh, very quick with his hands and it got him in trouble quite a few times. He was he you know he would. Uh, Settled the score very quick and fast. He was quite a guy. His brother, John B. Rock, was on the legislature. I don't think I've ever mentioned that. Uh, But John was more, um, he was more settled down. And he uh, he had it together uh, pretty much better than any of the boys. It was a, a family of six, you know, three girls and three boys. But uh, my dad was the youngest, and uh, he he died first, and, and they were all heavy set. So they, you know, they, that was against them right from the get go. But uh, just you know, I moved on. My dad, it's a shame he never got to see me drive the big cars. My mother did though. She watched me win a world championship at Ontario Motor Speedway, 1980. That was a trip because that was when NHRA made you run points races oh, you hated it you'd run these points races and you know you'd stack the points up and that's when you know it wasn't a countdown like it is now it's more or less a you know a crapshoot now yeah. it, it it diminishes what i did and how i did it so they've shortened the racetrack by 320 feet uh they've just kind of made it too easy for these kids that with you know dad has deep pockets and uh, that's pretty much what the racing is today. Not to take anything away from them, but I don't take the racers today that serious. Did you have a good relationship with both your parents? Not sure I had. A, my mother worked in a laundry, you know, for 20, 25 years or so. And my father did a little of everything. Drive taxi, 
where construction play the fiddle, square dance uh, 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 on Saturday night. Uh, he was quite a musician. He didn't read a note of music, but he knew it all by ear. And he was really masterful with a violin. Wonderful. And they did a lot of the uh, the circuit that was down in like Mallet's Bay and all the, the yes, summer that, places. That's right. Mallet's Bay. I haven't heard that in years. Interesting. Uh, yes, he did. He was pretty popular. Uh, and uh, then met my mother uh, in the early days. Uh, she was born in Salisbury. I think that's more east of Burlington. Yeah, it's down now, down near where I am, uh, Middlebury area. Middlebury, Rutland, that yeah. over there, yes. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's just, uh, you know, it, life is just so kicked back there. I hate to hear about the, you know, the goings on at the Middlebury College and all of that. It's just disappointing when I hear that there's, uh, you know, there's people that aren't happy with what they have there. They have no idea how lucky they are. I agree to that, hundred <laughs> percent. So <clears throat> let's let's go from uh, driving a tractor to driving. Um, you know, you had a you had a couple of hot rods out there on the on the streets, and now you're down near Schenectady, Albany. I, Troy, I raced, area, um, I raced away. the car I drove to work is what I took to the drag strip on Wednesday night down at Fonda. And, uh, you know, a couple times my father had to come down to find and bail me out because I tore the rear end out of it or some problem. And uh, uh, I wasn't without a car very often for very long. And uh, from there, you know, I, I that's when it started to really open up. Detroit got involved. NHRA was paying a lot of attention to the West Coast racers. They were the elite, and we were, you know, we were the, the scabs over in the east, and uh, we couldn't, we couldn't get any help, any, any assistance. Any of the programs went to all the, the you know, western guys and a couple of girls back then. I don't know what they drove, but I hear the names that were popular, but there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a female that was out there doing anything but just. Uh, running powder puff and getting puff pieces in the media. There was, I was the first one to go out there and win races. And that really, it really attracted a lot of attention. All of a sudden the phone started ringing. And that's when I went from a, you know, I went from a gas dragster that's injected on gasoline and then I went, put supercharger on it, a big blower. And then I was double B. Then I said, oh, heck, you know, we might as well go for it. So we just added an engine, had a dual engine car in, right. in uh, 1968, 69, and 70. Uh, two small block Chevys coupled together. Um, was it a change? No, um, belt drive. And I, I ran that for three years. Uh, yeah, I ran 190 miles an hour, 192, three. But I could not squeeze 200 miles an hour out of that car on gasoline. Couldn't do it. So I decided I was going to fall in line and uh, uh, drive a funny car. That was the first nitro effort I had. And the nitro, you thought nitromethane. That yeah, yeah. separates the men from the boys as far as price-wise. 
And uh, that's, uh, I spent 71, two and three in a pony car. Yeah, I won a national event down in Rockingham, North Carolina. And uh, I had my share of fires that got very old. At 200 on fire is not a nice place to be. So I, you know, I had the hard knocks and I learned the, the hard way, but I experienced all of it, every single bit of it. And, uh, but never, ever got on my head in 50 years, but one time it was parts failure. Oh, we're we're going to get to that. And that's a local thing for, uh, you know, yeah. we do a lot of stock car stuff on this show, but our fans will recognize the name St. Aaron when we definitely want to, uh, Same get to that part, but that's, let's, uh, let's go back here. When, when you're, when you're street racing, you're still a kid and not only are you, you're a kid, but you're a girl. I mean, that's, that's a double whammy for you. You know, I, we would run from the police and, uh, you know, there were times when they caught up to us, but, uh, yeah, I was racing on the streets and I met a guy named Jack Muldowney and he taught me how to drive a car. I took the test, got my permit, I had my driver's permit and I'm racing hundred miles an hour on route nine alongside a brand new Oldsmobile. And Jack would lean over from the passenger seat and said, I'm just going to put my hand on the wheel. That's we started this big drift to the left. And, uh, he, you know, he taught me the right way. I learned how to drive a car. Then I went to the, the drag strip, 1958, the 58 Chevrolet. Beautiful car. And it had three carburetors, standard shift, um, 348. Don't hold me to that. I don't remember the, you know, the call numbers that well that we all lived by back then, but uh, that was a great car I had. And then I went through a series of Corvettes, seven of them. And I want to tell you, each one was milked by the time we traded it in for a new one. And again, I drove those cars uh, to work and down the eighth mile, eighth mile uh, in Fonda and quarter mile in South Glens Falls. And And probably Lebanon Valley too, right? I don't remember if I ever ran the streetcars at Lebanon Valley. I probably did. Okay. But uh, things turned around. Chrysler was starting to um, pay, a lot, pay a lot of attention to the streetcars. And they were selling, you know, big muscle cars through a dealership. You could get, I mean, ones with aluminum front end and all kinds of bells and whistles. And I went to Detroit and... Uh, Introduced myself to the uh, the man that was in charge at that time, man named Sam Peacock. Everybody, that was uh, that was the name. You know, if you could get in to see him, uh, I did, but it didn't do me any it didn't do me any good. I could not get any help from them, so we decided to Jack went down and built the first dragster. He gas welded it, even though he knew how they hilly are, but he gas welded the first car, and I went out and ran 155 miles an hour in it uh in my test for for a license and huh, the record was 150 miles mile per hour record we didn't kind of look at et back then we looked at mile an hour because that's what the fans were they related to you know mph so i uh i stayed in that b gas double gas double a and then i went into the funny cars and uh, i had three years of that and it was really a stepping stone. 
I wanted to go top fuel. The first time I ever saw Don Garlitz, I went, I want to drive one of those cars. Big Daddy. Big Daddy. Ooh, yes. And uh, it, it happened. Uh, in 73, I was at Cayuga, Ontario. And I uh, it was a borrowed car, uh, a, a man that uh, Pancho Rendon out of Detroit. And he uh, eventually worked for me for a couple of years. But he had a nice top fuel car. And I uh, used that and did my test. Now, I already had a funny car license. I had already run 220 mile an hour on nitro. But uh, I had to do, I had to, you know, do an upgrade. And Garlitz, Coletta, and Tommy Ivo, TV Tommy Ivo signed for the upgrade. And uh, that was it. I never looked back. That was 73. I struggled for a couple of years in a bar, you know, it was Coletta's car. And it was just it, it, the way he set it up was was wrong. I mean, the thing would change lanes on me, and uh, he t- oh, he swore that I didn't I didn't know how to drive a, uh, a rack and pinion, so he would put a drag link steering on it. Come on, you know, uh, it's just at the front end. It was way off. It was way off. So we had a trailer episode uh, towing from the coast, and we pulled into a you know a racer's uh, garage, and he worked on the trailer and got us variable and at the same time he looked at the car and went this front end is crazy how do you drive this thing i said i learned how i just you know i don't think anybody can drive it but me he says well i'm gonna fix it and he did and the thing went out went straight as an arrow i could have driven it with my eyes closed so all that time i struggled for a year uh it wasn't me at all it was back home well you know I think again, we we talk a lot of stock car stuff, and if you don't drive junk, you're not going to know what to do with a good car. So, yeah, well, I I uh, that's probably it. Probably helped you. Well, it did help me. Oh, sure, because uh, the, the the cars that Jack Muldowney uh, prepared for me, he did a great job. the The guy had s- such a knack with just the setup and the tune up, and he uh, when he went into nitro. Uh, with the funny cars, everybody had to marvel at how well he did. And the first funny car event, which was an eight car show at Lebanon Valley, uh, my first time out, I won the event. So that was the Ram Chargers and Brutus Car and and the Magana Brothers and all of the people that were, you know, big shooters then. Well, we showed them the way home. That was the beginning of We Hate Shirley. Well, okay. And that's, that's exactly what, you know, that's, that seems to be the underlying theme here. We hate Shirley because of who she is. They hated me and I hated them. And that was just the mindset I needed to stick with it and stay right in that, you know, the, the fight. I uh, decided that I wanted to change, make a change in my life. And I, I moved to the Detroit area in 71. And that was, uh, I had some very tough years there, one, two, and three uh, in the funny cars. And it it was not the competition. It was just keeping my head above water. And it was, uh, it was rough living in, you know, dinky little motels. And finally in 73, I bought a house, my first home. And I lived in apartments my whole life. So this was pretty nice for me. And uh, from there, it, I started to clean up my act. And I won my first national event with NHRA in 76. 
You're Mrs. Tom Fuel. Tom Fuel. Okay, we never looked back. We're in Top Fuel right now. Yeah. I won Columbus, and I won. Uh, I I sold the car in Dallas, and we towed to San Jose, California, to pick up the new Atterbury car that was being built. And uh, oh, we got there and uh, saw the state the car was in. Oh my God, Ron Atterbury, what are you doing to us? We were on our way to Seattle to catch that race the following weekend. And uh, Coletta said, you know, I'll tell you something, that car better be fixed or you're going to be a dead out of Barry. Well, <laughs> that got everybody's attention. And he had a very finished the car and we went on to Seattle. Uh, I think I was a runner up there. Might be wrong, but we turned around and came back down to Ontario and I won the world finals in that uh, brand new car. So, uh, you know, I just had Ontario, California, yeah. in California. So I won Ontario twice. I mean, you know, I'm proud of that because it no longer it's gone. I mean, they mm-hmm. they built it for four million and, and spent six million tearing it down. So uh, that was a kind of a, a hard hit for the sport to lose that facility. But uh, they needed more garages and strip malls out there. <laughs> Isn't that the way it goes? Yeah, it is. So I, uh, you know, 77, I won the championship and we had it sewn up by Indy in September. So there was still two months left of racing and how many extra events we had to run. I, you know, I showed that I, you know, I, I could hold, hold my own for a number of years and 78 was a awful year. I, uh, I decided that I wanted to make a change and who, who was calling shots on the car. And uh, we went out and did it on our own. Uh, I hired my number two guy, put him in the front seat, and then moved John, my son, to the number two guy. And they all worked together and did a great job at 78. We struggled. Ooh, burned a lot of parts. Uh, I, you know, it was Shirley's school, Shirley's top fuel school. And that, that gets very expensive. So 78, 79 was yeah, a little better. 80 came out with a brand new Atterbury car. It was so small. I mean, it was like this in the car. But we rolled it out of the trailer at Pomona, the first race. And the, the lettering was tacky. It was that fresh. And we went, I qualified two or three. But I went. And I won the race. Of course, I raced Coletta in the final. And it was like, there was, you know, there was a rule. Five people on the starting line per team. That's it. There was, when we ran that race in the final, there was 500 people on that starting line. And they weren't moving anyone. And it was, uh, you know, his car always made up move. And then it faltered. And he, I left on him, but his car made a better move. Because I have pictures. He's out there a little bit. And I just drove around him. And it was a wonderful feeling. So for, for some context, um, for, for some fans who don't know, this is Connie Coletta, who's, who's really one of, the, one of the stars of NHRA forever and ever. Well, he was a star namesake. His, his name, name was popular Absolutely. only because of the factories. And he did, went on with Ford, and he, you know, uh, he won the Winter Nationals with a Ford engine. It never, it never surfaced again. But uh, Connie was uh, his name was popular. But he went from 1964 to 1988 in between winning a national NHRA national event. Mm. So how good was he? You know, Connie is uh, short for Conrad. Right. 
and uh, I, I, you know, I would call him Conrad. I had a number of tags that I laid on him, and uh, all well deserved. But um, he, he was um, well. I went in in '77. I was the first driver to win three back to back: Columbus, English Town, and then Montreal, or whichever one was first. Yeah. Um, we qualified in the number, I think, number one position, maybe two. We qualified on Friday. Coletta flew in on Saturday and landed on the racetrack. That was all for effect. His, his uh, twin engine plane there. And uh, he did his tune-up. <laughs> and as a result of that, we ran two one-hundredths slower and burned it to the ground, engine-wise. Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, he always was famous for throwing every sink in the house at it. And he, you know, he was expensive to have around. And I had had it about the year anyhow. So we went on to uh, do our own thing. Again, 80 was a wonderful year. 81, I won my share of races. And 82, I won the third world championship for NHRA. They were trying everything they could to keep us from uh could walk around with this big stack of money you know there's a hundred dollar bill wrapped around you know 500 ones but he would go around and he would offer engines tires nitro anything he could out of his trailer to, to beat me he was wasting his money because we had a you know we had tunnel vision and all we all we cared about and and fought for was that you know that scoreboard coming up win and uh you know those were these are wonderful years, I'll tell you. I'm so glad that I did what I did, how I did it, or I wouldn't I wouldn't have made it. Now you had mentioned your son and part of your story and honestly we were just talking about it before we talked to you, Justin's wife came by and we mentioned it and I did with mine, is that you got married at sixteen years old. Yes. You have a son. What is that like for you to try and start your own family at 16 years old and chase this dream i didn't know any better i was yes i was 16 uh, uh i turned 17 six months later uh you know Je- my folks really liked jack Muldowney. he had you know feet on the ground stable good guy uh talented all of those things but uh uh, John was born a year and a half later. And we had, he knew a, a gentleman that ran a Ford dealership in Chestertown, New York. I mean, two cars in the showroom. That was it. You know, a very small That is a dealership. small town. Yes. And Jack worked for this man for a year and a half. And we moved there and had a three-room apartment up over a two-stall garage. We came home one weekend when my doctor told me not to do it. And we did. And uh, it was like Sunday morning or Saturday morning. I woke Jack up. I said, I think we got to go. And I had a hundred mile an hour ride through Clifton Park, Route 9, all the way up through Saratoga, Glens Falls. So John um, was born went. racing then, basically. John was <laughs> he had no choice. <laughs> he, he loved racing. And when we would go to Fonda on Wednesday night, and we would leave him with his grandma. He would cry. It was It was very sad. But John, when I left Schenectady, John had a choice, and he came with me. And uh, he was with me all those years. Very, a huge part of my championship wins. Very smart. 
He was self-taught, except what his he learned from his father. Uh, just a wonderful, masterful welder. Could weld any metal, you name it. He could even precious metal. Mm-hmm. He did weld on the shuttle at one time, uh, parts oh. for the shuttle. And uh, John was very crafty. And uh, I lost him three years ago. He's gone. And, and you know that's something that we were going to you know, talk about later in the show, yeah, I suppose, but, uh, that. you know, it's, it seems like he was a constant presence in your entire career. He was there and we were, we were buddies. And I always told John, you know, what's mine is yours, John. And maybe that, no, not maybe that was the wrong thing to tell John. And, uh, he, he just, uh, I'm not going to say he, he made some bad decisions, but still in all, he, he educated himself and, and uh, made sure that he had a trade, that he could always get a job and do whatever. Hmm. And uh, it just, he liked to party. And I, uh, I tried my best, but uh, anytime I, I see all the, the young crew members and they're all at the races they come in on thursdays and then you know i walk in the hotel to check in and i look in the bar and they're they're like standing room only Hmm. as i tell you guys stay out of the bar stay out of the bar it isn't going to do anything for you career-wise do you think it was easier for you having him have a passion similar to yours and be able to be with you I mean, we talk, it's a kind of a constant, it seems like with our, a lot of our guests who have kids, you know, we talked to Dwayne Lanfear, his son is starting to run late models and the pride he has that his son wanted to do a similar hobby as him just lighted him up when we brought it up. Yes. I was proud of, but John, John always thought that, you know, well, Kenny Bernstein, Brandon Bernstein. Connie Coletta, Scott Coletta, all these, he would say the lucky sperm club is what John would say. I'm not a member of that. Well, he, he thought that I should hand him a turnkey race car. John, this ain't that kind of a deal. That car isn't worth five cents unless I'm driving it. And that is true. There are so many out there, so many wannabes. And dreamers hanging over the guardrail that uh, some no doubt could, some not in their wildest dreams. But uh, John thought that I, you know, should should hand him a turnkey race car. And there you go, John. Well, it didn't happen. And he I think, no, I know he held that against me. But I drove the car for a living until 2003. That was my last ride. Mm -hmm. Pomona. And uh, I was still. You know, we used to run three runs in Epping, New Hampshire for $750. I mean, I mean, really in 100 degree heat and all of the, you know, the downtime. And it was, you know, to deal with promoters who couldn't find them once, you know, the pay window opened and things like that. You know, it, it just, those are hard years. And uh, John saw some of the hardships and some of the tough times. And, but he didn't learn from that. And, you know, when you're young, you you fail to see the writing on the wall. And it certainly wasn't his fault. But all of my team members, they all got paid every Saturday night. They all got their pay and their bonus money. And that was most important to me. 
Finally, my CPA said, Shirley, you're going to have to start paying yourself something. You're not going to have any social security mm-hmm. when you get old. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, boy, was he right. He knew exactly what he was talking about. Let me ask you, and I, I feel like you kind of hinted at it. Do you think it makes you a better driver, not just you, but people in general, if you're responsible, you need to work on your own car, you need to make your stuff fast as opposed to putting down a wad of money and trying to get the fastest car by buying it? Yeah, well, I didn't ever put down a wad of money. Uh, you know, I, nev- I never went racing like that. I wish to God that I could race the way these racers do today. I never had the, you know, the uh, available to me what they have today. It's just amazing. And, uh, uh, but I didn't work on the car. I knew what was happening. I knew the difference between a, you know, flat dome piston and a, you know, a, a flat piston and a dome piston. I knew, you know, uh, I knew what I had to know because I wrote the checks on Monday and, uh, to keep up with, you know, parts coming in, parts going out. And, uh, it, uh, you know, it was a lot of work. You know, believe me, a million dollars would go through my, my books in the course of a, you know, we'll say a year and a half. I always wish that there was a time when I could look at that checkbook and I'd see a hundred thousand dollar balance with all the bills paid. And in the 50 years I was out there, I never once achieved that, Hmm. that, that car just, (laughs) it took me for a wicked ride. And I was there, I was right there up front, you know, I let it happen. And uh, again, I said, I wouldn't change anything. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. It's the way, but racers today, we all say the old timers, not that I'm a, uh, we all say they have no idea what they missed. We lived the great time when you'd be on the road headed for LA and you'd see race car trailers going to east you go to a you know 64 funny car show amazing right uh you know you don't have that today but the cost of it is just astronomical and the racers are all responsible for that nhra they you know changed the rules and made it difficult for some to keep up but uh the racers i mean they just the well-funded rich guys that use it as a tax write-off, they're the ones that made the sport a giant money pit. Hate it. Well, you, you, uh, you know, talking about going down the coast and seeing 64 funny cars and, and seeing those rail dragsters and all that stuff, you were, I mean, truly uh, one of the lead characters in that, you know, golden age of drag racing. And I'm talking about, Perdome and Tom McEwen and Don Garlitz. And I mean, you really, you guys laid the foundation. Yeah, absolutely. Let me tell you, there's some, you know, but when I look at the the people we've lost, Raymond Beetle is gone. Gordy Mm -hmm. Monin is gone. Um, I mean, I'm fishing. Uh, So many of them are, are gone from the sport. And it's, it's just, it's, it's sad. Um, some of these people died young, not in the cars. I'm talking, you know, I'm talking good, great drivers. Dale Poldy, great driver. Uh, not the most popular name out there because he just wasn't. He was a he was a paid in driver. 
but the people that made these cars popular, I say the people, I like it when the cars have names. Hell's a poppin' and lawman and and man of war and those were all the names that would be on these funny cars and the swamp rat loved it yeah absolutely it, they relate to that and of course uh now they beg me to sign cha-cha they beg me not sure you know if that's what you want yeah that was my time in the sport that's what i want you to do. okay i'll do it just for you you know and there's 10 behind him but um uh the 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 my my following is still out there, big time. I have uh, like a hundred. I think it's a lot, a hundred and ten thousand on my Facebook. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't think there's any other racer out there that can say that. Maybe John Force, but John Force, I know that in in the seventies there were promoters that used to pay him not to run because they didn't want him to oil the track down. John will tell you that himself. So he's not bashful, but, uh, you know, talking to, uh, as a businessman, eh, I'm not so sure, but as a driver, he's very, very good. He's very good. Yeah. Yeah, when he got the 14 world championships, he had uh, Austin Coyle and it was like a, a marriage and they, it just worked for a certain period of time. And then it, uh, it all went away. You mentioned it where and when did cha-cha come in and was that something that you liked or no i didn't love it but nicknames being synonymous with the sport of dragger and you know the cars always Mm -hmm. had uh and of course there was shirley mulvowney's long you know it's a long name yeah it's a long name and it's not a name you run into every day so you know it wasn't you know unseen or unheard of but um tommy ivo told me telling you shirley you need to Put Chacha on the car and paint it pink. And I listened to him. And it was the best advice anybody ever gave me because it stood out, gave me an identity other than my name. And uh, uh, people today go, oh, Chacha, they're not so sure about Shirley. That's pretty, that's pretty. Well, it's an eye opener. So uh, I, I can't say I hate it because I used it. So, and it served me well. Uh, and oh, there was a you, time when I didn't, well, they, uh, let me, let me go back and tell you why that happened. Because I went into Indy in 78, I think, and I had taken it off the helmet. And Steve Evans, who was always looking for that, that perfect one-liner, or you know, he's an announcer, and he, yep. he looks for, you know, things that the fans are going to relate to. He said, oh, Shirley, don't call me Cha-Cha Muldowney, and it stuck. And then all of a sudden, how I hated the name. That's how that came about. So that was just a storyline then. It wasn't it was necessarily the truth. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. When I went to Sanford, Maine, to a door slammer, you know, uh, in a 58 Chevrolet. It was on the 58 Chevrolet, just as nice as could be. A um, tech guy standing in line putting numbers on windows with shoe polish drew it on my car, just or whatever. He just, it was a red, lowered all the way around. It would waddle in and, you know, and drag over any uh, bump that you could find. And uh, it had teared up drop spotlights and a white convertible top 
It was a beautiful car. And that's I ran that car at Fonda. That's where that's where the name came from, a tech guy? That's where that's where the name came from, believe it or not. Interesting. Yeah. Now, but I mean no story behind it, but you know, forgive me here, but you were you were a sex symbol um for a long time and 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 I'm not saying just drag racing, it was nationwide. I mean, you were you were the face of drag racing and <laughs> in the women's lib movement and all that in that era in the 60s, 70s. And, yeah, I mean, I were you did. comfortable? Well, I you know, I was never bra burner. I was not, you know, in the women's liver or, you know, cha- you know, right there, you know, Billy Jean King. Uh, none of that interests me. None of it. I just was a drag racer. I did the uh, superstars back in the 70s, 77 superstars. And they brought all these a- a- Amy Alcott and all these, these um, uh, females from different sports, you know, golfing and track and all. I met some very nicely. Martina Navratilova was one of them there. Very nice to talk to. Um, they, I, I went, this is not for me. They want me to go out and run a quarter mile. I said, are you crazy? I'm not going to ride. Yeah, I would, I'll get in a car and do it, but I'm not an athlete. I'm not going to run mm-hmm. uh, a quarter mile. So that was pretty much it. Uh, how much away from that sort of thing? Yeah. How much stuff did you have to turn down that people were bringing to you that you didn't want to do? Because you know you search your name, you look at the pictures, and it's you know always that white tank top with you know yeah, well, with a turtleneck you know, and round to my belly buttons. You know, yeah. I I I tried to be tasteful at the racetrack, but uh, you know I didn't really uh, strive for that kind of an image. Like a, a jungle pan, she I mean, that was a hard act to follow, and I wasn't going there. But um, uh, that was that was a different part of the sport. The girls that backed their boyfriends up and all of that that was that was part of it. But that wasn't wasn't my act. So did you turn down a lot of money opportunities that were uh, stuff no, you didn't want to do? I didn't, I didn't turn down very many money opportunities because they were so few and far between. Uh, you know, they call, okay, we want you to, uh, we want you to uh, hit a wall at 30 miles an hour head on. I'm like, what are you crazy? That's 60 miles an hour. What you I mean, these promoters, every Joe goer that, had, that slept and woke up with an idea yeah, they would, they would get to me somehow, but I was smart enough to stay away from. Them. I had uh, visions of uh, land speed ride. Oh yeah, I always wanted to do that. And they had a, uh, uh, they had a car ready to go in the seventies, late seventies, and it was a Virginia Slim, nice, nice car, uh, but it never happened for me, and I didn't go there. Um, Ray Nichols who was a NASCAR guy. He had his uh, cars and it, drivers, and he gave me a shot uh, in a uh, NASCAR car at a at a half-mile oval. I spun it out twice. And we were glad that. At least we know you're trying. It wasn't for me. I, I could have cared less. I'm a drag racer, and, th- you know, that's a certain breed. And once you know, once you've done that for as long as I had been a drag racer, and that was in the early days, uh, I wasn't going to make any changes. That was a smart move on my part. I'd say so. 
Um, all right, let's let's skip ahead now. I mean, you've you've won. A, you're the only three time world champion by eighty two. Uh, well, uh, yes, I am, but the, <laughs> I love her to death. Angel Sampe, the motorcycle yep. rider, yep. as beautiful as they come, prettiest girl in the pits. Uh, she's won a lot of races. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, I, know, I, I was saying in in nineteen eighty two. Oh, in eighty two. You're the first, yes. yeah. Well, I'm still the only three timer in top fuel, you know. Right. But I went over when I went back to NHRA after, you know, hiatus for a few years. Um, I was in Indy and here come oh the announcer. <laughs> it's right on the tip of my tongue. He won't be happy with me, but uh, uh he came over with his TV cameras and um, and I took him by the shirt and says, Come here. You see that there? Does that look like a motorcycle? I mean, yeah, my, my car's up on the jacks. Oh, no, it doesn't. It's no motorcycles here. Okay, as long as we've got that understood, we can go from there. In other words, don't compare me to Angel because it's, it's, it's apples and oranges. It's day and night, black and white. Like, she's great. She's wonderful. But that ain't, that ain't a top fuel car. And there's a major difference. Big yeah. time difference. Big time. But now in, in 82, you are, you know, you're on top of the world, um, quite literally world champion for the third time. And uh, 83 uh, was a, a pretty good year as well. Um, and that's when the movie came out, Heart Like a Wheel. And um, that's the story of Shirley Muldowney. Well, for better or worse. It really wasn't. And I liked the movie. I think I met some great people. It was the most money I'd ever seen at one time in my life. I really, it, it kept me racing for a number of years because I, I soaked it right back into the racing program. And, uh, I wanted, you know, I, I wanted the movie to be a racing movie, but Hollywood wasn't interested in that. They turned it into a love story, and it turned out to be the Connie Coletta story. That guy goes around Ypsilanti, Michigan today and tells people, they made a movie about me. I mean, and he's serious. That's what's crippling. Uh, 20th Century Fox was responsible for the, for the distribution. They had nothing to do with the production or anything to do with the movie, just the distribution. Well, I've had three producers in the last two years come to me and want to do another movie, but a movie more about Shirley and how I did it. And, you know, sort of like, you know, to um, uh, resemble the the movie they just did about Tina Turner, I'm told is wonderful. Well done. Class act. I uh, the writers that came to me initially um, two years ago said, we watch her. We think you were robbed. Well, it's the, the way the story went, mm-hmm. and I can't complain because I have just admitted that this in the last year, I never read the last script. I was so busy chasing a world championship, I let it slide, and I was very sorry I did that. There were things in there that I would have changed. Bonnie hugging every guy she came in contact with. Throwing her arms around Connie, going, oh, Connie, I was so scared. I mean, give me a break. I was so disappointed to see that. 
that was no more me than anyone. It didn't, it just wasn't me. And a lot of people say, well, you know, she did good, but she wasn't Shirley. That's true. She wasn't. So uh, come to find out now, they wanted to do another movie. Can't do it because 20th Century Fox owns the rights to my life. That's sickening. How dare they? Yeah. How dare they? So we had to change our approach a little bit. So we turned uh, the script, they moved it around and changed it around and did whatever they needed to do. Uh, it's going to be a TV series. That's going to be fun. So this is happening then? It is happening, yes. Excellent. Yeah. Wow. And are you going to be more hands-on? With the project, because oh, I know, no, absolutely. Well, I'm not chasing a race car. <laughs> I yes. read that even like down to like little details, like you didn't like how Bonnie got out of the car; it didn't look right. Yeah, that was more. That was a kind of a dig. Uh, to be honest and fair, uh, I said Bonnie gets out of the car like she's getting up from the dinner table, is yeah. what I said, and uh, she just didn't come up. She didn't pull it off. She didn't study it. She didn't. She played it the way she wanted to play it. She, you know, I'm in love with every guy that you know comes up to me, and uh, I was not happy with her. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't. And she went on to do some film festivals in Seattle and Denver and uh, uh, Colorado. And uh, she, well, I don't even like cars. And she just, she, I was not happy with her at all. Is it true you wanted a young Jamie Lee Curtis? I wanted Jamie Lee Curtis because I had breakfast with her and found her to be delightful. Just She's pretty badass what too. The yeah. doctor ordered. Oh, <laughs> she is gorgeous. Gorgeous. And very, very, very smart. She and the reason she didn't get the part, uh, she couldn't pull off the twenty-five years old, the sixteen years old, and the forty years old. I get you. That is why she didn't get the part. Right. I was so disappointed. But Bonnie, she went and took cotton and puffed her cheeks out when she played the 16-year-old. And she had all the, you know, the uh, all the little tricks of the trade. Yeah. Plus, I think she liked the director. I didn't say that. <laughs> uh, to jump around a little bit, to go back to kind of our area here, what do you remember about the drag strip in Milton? Because it comes up now every now and again for people who never got to see it or never went there. Like, is it true that there was something that there was one in Milton? And what was it like? Well, there was one in Milton. And I'll tell you what we did. It's funny as can be. We, we, We show up there. I'm looking for the picture of Milton as it is today. I just had it in my hand yesterday. Believe it or not. It's just a little bit of asphalt, and there's grass growing this high in between the cracks of the, okay, I know I'm not going to be lucky to put my hand on it. We pull up to the gate, and we've got two cars on trailers, a 63 Plymouth 426 with full uh, iron front end, you know, radio, heater, full upholstery. This thing had a monster motor in it. Belonged to a guy named Stan Newman. Then we had a 63 Dodge with the aluminum front end. No heater, no radio, no upholstery, no headliner. It was a stripped-down model, and it was 
it was made to drag race. It was a race car. Yeah. It was a race car. Charlie Lundgren was driving it. And uh, we all stood out there, and uh, here comes the promoter. And he, oh, oh, come right in. Well, you know, well, how much do you want? And that's when it all started. And we're all hemming and hawing and going, well, my husband says to Stan, hey, Stan, when we get it at go? Oh, we got $300 at go. We had never been to at go in our lives. <laughs> but we pulled in there. We offloaded those cars. And my father showed up with my mother. They were visiting on the island. Uh, a South Hero, and uh, we had a day of it. The place was packed, and I ran against Charlie. And the difference was, I had a push button transmission, and he had a st- standard shift transmission, mm-hmm. and that's how I won the race. There's a huge um, following that's starting to grow about racing in Milton between Catamount Stadium and the drag strip, and uh, it's really kind of been sort of a renaissance and, and your name was heavily promoted um, up there for, for quite a while. It's good. And I see names like John Casey and Jack DeBrule and Brule, yes, um, you know, mm-hmm. some of the, some of the people that were heavily involved in, in the oval track stuff up here. Um, what do you remember about those guys? Not much because I, you know, I was so consumed with what I was doing and, you know, I couldn't, didn't venture. You know, I wasn't the most popular gal in the, you know, the group. I didn't go looking for any trouble. Mm. Not that it would have been trouble, but uh, I just wasn't accepted that that much. Uh, so I stayed close to, you know, my act, and uh, you know, that was what I did. I didn't uh, never socialized much mm. with other racers, uh, but uh, you know, when I went pro. Uh, in the nitro ranks, that was just a different world. I made a lot of friends in the nitro ranks, a lot of friends. We'd go to Dallas, you know, all the stops in between the races, but we'd, you know, pull over to Dallas on our way to Gainesville from Pomona. And I'd work out of the Blue Max ratio. Raymond Beetle. Sure. What a great, great guy he was. Great guy. I had a beautiful pair of uh no it wasn't it wasn't earrings check that i have a dragster a gold dragster i wore on the chain this quite long and a very very nice piece and those were popular in the 70s and 80s and uh rain said take that off give me that uh, just get, just give it to me so i handed it to him uh knowing i was going to get it back and i did get it back a week later and there were diamonds in the wheels huh. and across the the wing. He was just a class guy. He was wonderful. Very generous and very cool. Very cool guy. Rusty Wallace. Yeah, Rusty Wallace. He uh he wouldn't have won a championship at all in NASCAR if it wasn't for Raymond Beetle. That's right. Yep. And he was not he didn't compliment Raymond either. I'm not a big Rusty fan. Yeah, that deal ended oh, very yes. badly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, so we're, we started talking about racing locally, and that ties us back into um, the 80s here as we go up to San Air, which is only an hour from home for you, really. And uh, the whole world comes apart in, in 84. Well, I was in Michigan then, so it wasn't 
Well, sure, but yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, here I it's, it's Napierville. Close. Napierville yeah. a lot in, uh, in the '60s, and uh, we went into a, you know a national event. It was points, and uh, I I I came in the rig. I I didn't fly into the on site uh, very very much. I I went with the rig, and it was more fun. It was uh, last qualifying on Friday, and uh, left lane. And I uh, raced Dick LaHaye. And uh, your car left good. It was, you know, picture-perfect run. And uh, coming into the lights, I uh, saw the left front tire. The tube came out of the left front tire. That's when we had tube tires. Bicycle tires. Well, they were uh, bicycle tires uh, that they used over in Europe. Goodyear did not and did never did have a front tire effort in drag racing. They had the, all the rear tire, but they never, no one had a front tire other than this foreign rubber that we ran on. We used to spit tires off like and rim it down through the lights. Uh, previous week, I had run Don Garlitz Union Grove, and uh, he was complaining after the run. She's throwing rubber at me and his team guy said well my god if she if her rubber was hitting you you must have been behind her huh big daddy <laughs> yes great story uh tommy lemon so he was great one-liners but uh what happened was the tube didn't leave the car it came out on the inside and it wrapped around the spindle and it never broke it just got tighter and tighter. And then that wheel started to get really heavy. I'm going, should I? And the chutes were always from day one between my legs, the two, the two handles for the two chutes. Um, I don't know if I had two chutes then. I think I had just one. It wasn't mandatory. Uh, I, I thought to myself, go for the chute, go for the chute. And I did. I went for the chute and came back to the wheel. And when I did, the wheel came around and it took this thumb off. And it went right to the point, like the front wheels went, and I went off at a 90 at 250, and it impacted into the bank. And the car just disintegrated. It, the car just came apart. Like the car, oh boy, I didn't know it. Like the car. My son reconstructed the car in the driveway of my house. There was nothing left but the cage. And the, the, the foot box was long, which was a Huge mistake building the cars. We really learned a lot by my accident. Uh, but the, the the chassis broke off at the top of my thigh. And my legs were out for 300 feet. And I got hurt. And, uh, you know, I just, I got the shootout. I did everything, but I couldn't save it. Could not save it. And it, it changed my life. I can't wear high heels. I can't wear anything over a half inch. It's terrible when you got to dress up. But, uh, and I was a shoe freak. My whole life, I was a shoe freak. But uh, I went through many operations and skin grafts and bone grafts and ankle fusion and on and on and on. And uh, again, it it changed my life big time. Was it ever in your mind that you were done or were you always, I'm going to come back from this? I'm not sure if I said that to myself, but the first time I looked at my ankle, which was wide open. You could see the bone and tendon and everything. It was like scary. Uh, I was in Montreal General 
for two months. On the ninth floor, no air conditioning. Uh, and uh, Connie flew me in his medical jet to Detroit. I never saw my house. They just brought my little dog down to the uh, city airport. And uh, I went straight to Detroit receiving. And I was there for not that long. Uh, they made a huge mistake and uh, took all the Hoffman devices off. That's where the pins are in your leg. It's the racks. I had 20 pounds of Hoffman's on my legs that lined the bones up because they were they were non-union. When they took those off, the legs just fell apart on the operating table, and it was not. It was very painful. So they take me back in, realign up, and I wound up with a uh, short leg as a result of that one mishap. Canada did a perfect job. Detroit, they couldn't leave well enough alone. So my uh, my husband at the time, uh, Ron, got me down to Dr. Trammell in Indianapolis. He had worked on Rick Mears, who also crashed in in Sonair. Yes. Um, he took one look at my X-ray. And, I mean, I saw him from the other room. He went rolled his eyes, and from there, uh, he was operating on me the next day. So he saved my legs. I was, this was in January. I crashed in June, six, seven months. I was still maybe going to lose my leg. And if I didn't, if I didn't do something, it would be amputation. I still had that synopsis in his handwriting, not typed. It's in his handwriting. So uh, it was, uh, it was a lot of physical therapy and it was a long time, a long haul sitting in that house in Michigan in the dead of winter was awful but i got through it i got through it <laughs> it's amazing two years later you're still walking with a cane on the johnny carson show yes yeah. yes i i why i i could have walked out better than i did without the cane but the reason that they thought that i because of that short leg they put a lift on the bottom of my shoe and it threw me i was like i had a gait like that was ridiculous and it was not the legs so much as it was how they orthotics had built yeah, the, the lift the and they it threw me off and i i was much in much better condition when i was on it then it appeared well but, it's good for the show well yeah <laughs> it was good you know and then johnny and i were racing golf carts in the back he was so much fun he was so wonderful yeah i would uh and the one thing i liked so much about that is I was invited. It was not set up by some PR girl. And, you know, no, no, they, the Johnny Carson show called the NHRA. And I wasn't, you know, I was, I was easy to find. I was out there doing uh, physical therapy every day, including Sunday. You had raced the week before though. You'd come back. Is that right? Is why my I, timeline, right? That you'd I, raced uh, Pomona? No, no, no. That was before Pomona, I'm pretty sure. I I went to Phoenix, and that's the first time I was in a car after the accident, and that was two weeks before Pomona. Okay, so, but you're yeah, but, but you're back in the car anyway. I'm back in the car like I never left. But the funny thing about it is they did fuse my left ankle. That is the foot that got knocked off, and mm. I took delivery of a new car, a new Al Swindle car. When I did a 
they take just the measurements from the last car and engineer them into the new car. And it's like, you know, all homely, no problem. Why, well, you know, I cannot drive this car. The clutch was a, just a bar and my foot was fused flat. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't get the motion and I, I couldn't control the pedal. My son worked all night long and made a, a pedal inside the car that was shaped like this big pedal. You could come up and you'd hit it. No matter how hard you tried not to hit it, it was going to be there. And I carried that that left pedal, clutch pedal, uh, in every car I drove right up to 2003. Huh. And Garlitz, it's, Garlitz has the last pass car. And I thought, oh, I thought I had a chance to go back. I said, Don, send me that, take that pedal on the last pass car and send it to me. We've got to exact it for the new, for the car I'm going to drive, maybe. Make sure you send it back. That's the best pedal I have in the museum. <laughs> it's so full of it. So um, I, I did. I had to, I had a, a copy made, and we have you know the diagrams and everything that we would need if I ever went back. I would have the same configuration. I couldn't drive it any other way. See that foot is fused flat. No arch. No movement. No pivot, side to side, or up and down. Nothing. So mm. I, you know, I hide it pretty well when I walk, but it's uh, I, I can't walk very far. Are you and Don Garlitz friends or enemies or yes. both? We're friends. Friend? Yeah. He has been wonderful to me in later years. Wonderful. It, it seems, at least from the the portrayal in the movie and in interviews and stuff that you know from old film <laughs> yeah, that yeah. that you guys you know pick on each other a little bit, but it's. Sometimes it's hard to tell if it was in jest or if it was serious. Well, uh, good question. And I'll answer you truthfully. In the 70s and 80s, he hated me and I hated him. It was, he would get into town a couple days early prior to a match race. And he'd do, he'd go to town on me in the newspapers. Oh, really? Uh, okay. So, uh, and the fans knew it was a real rivalry. It was the real thing. And, uh, I mean, fans uh, would say things to me, and John had to cork some guy in, uh, in, uh, at Byron, knock him right out. And uh, uh, Garlitz's guy is chasing John. Uh, John <laughs> managed to get on people's nerves. Uh, um, his crew chief chased John around the car with a breaker bar. And, oh, yeah, well, that's what they used to turn the motors over sure, back, yeah. Yeah, with the nitro out of the cylinders. So, um, yeah, John stuck up for his mother. Oh, yeah, well, it was a fight over lane choice. You know, I take the left, he takes the right. We switch for the next round. This is when we used to run three runs. We don't do that anymore. For the match races. Match race. I mean, dead serious match yeah. racing in La Place, Louisiana. And the place is packed. You couldn't put another person in there. And he, we went for the third round. And he just pulled up and took the lane. He wow, and no, I turned into a giant thing on the starting line. So we got down the end of the racetrack. We lit into each other. John, he, he ran off at the mouth. Garlitz's crew chief's a big guy. I mean, John was running around the car. Her parts was right after him with a breaker bar. Yeah, poor her parts. He's gone. There's another. He was a good drag racer in, in his own field. For those that don't know, explain match racing. Match racing is 
you know, there is an NHRA national events. And then there are these tracks. Some are national event tracks, but they will fill their schedule through the year, the racing season, and they'll bring in some names. Uh, okay, we'll bring in Shirley Muldowney and we'll run our Saturday, we'll run our local hero. You know, I'll show you how to put this guy away, okay? No problem. Uh, uh, or Shirley and Don, that's twice the money. You know, Shirley would get, uh, you know, uh, 1500 Garlitz would probably get 1500 You know, she didn't get more than me. Uh, Ivo, I raced him quite a bit in the 70s. TV Tommy. Well-known story. Ivo, you know, he would book. He would do the booking. He'd tell me when, how much, where we had to be, you know, uh, any days of PR prior to the event. And uh, he says, now, you know, it's got to be 750 to rent. It's got to be seven. They're not going to go for anymore. Okay, Tommy, whatever you say. No problem. So we raced Columbus on an off weekend. Full house. I, I dusted him off like I normally did. And uh, got back in the trailer. The place empties out. Everything's. So I walked down to the uh, starting line, looked for the promoter's car, and I, I don't see him. And I and I see this big Cadillac coming down the racetrack the opposite way towards the starting line. And uh, he pulled up. Oh, great show today, sure. And he hands this envelope to me across the passenger seat. Thank you, Mr. Bader. Thank you. Where he goes. I open the envelope and it's Ivo's check by mistake. It's for $1,000. <laughs> so I just stood there on the starting line and I waited. And I waited, and here comes that Cadillac again. Exchanged envelopes. I never raced Ivo again. He's the one that put the deal together. Well, he said, you know, 750, 750, 750. And here he's getting a thousand. How many times did he do that to me? Mm -hmm. And I believed him. So you don't, we're great friends today. I love Ivo. He's terrific. And he was a very good driver. Never won a national event, not even one. But he was very popular. Yeah. And uh, he was one of the, the uh, actors on My Little Margie. He was, in a, uh, he was one of the original Musketeers. Uh, his, uh, his mom uh, made a little star out of him in the early days. And I think he still lives off all that money. Sleeps till one. He has a 150-inch <laughs> TV. He's just, you know, he lives life very lazy like but that's okay yeah well yeah look ahead to what are we 2001 right now and you have you know a couple geeks like justin and i who are just giddy about <laughs> getting the opportunity to talk to you and you see you know all the force girls and erica enders and all these girls getting the opportunity to race <laughs> Does that give you a sense of pride that you paved a pretty wide path to give a lot of people a lot of opportunities? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think I can take a little bit of credit there. Uh, I try not to tell uh, another racer how to do it, you know, when, how, because everyone has their own style. Right. Their own way of, you know, getting to the winner's circle. Uh, if I see something stupid, 
I remind them of it. I'm looking out for their best. Uh, if I see something really stupid, then I turn them in to an HRA. Do, do they do they seek you out? And I, and I suppose not even just the women, but the no. men too. No, nobody no. does. Here's what they do. They make one run in that car. Everything goes as planned. Oh, my God. Is that all there is to this? Oh, yeah. And they get on television a little bit. And all of a sudden, they think they're superstars. And they don't need my advice. I think that's how they they feel. They may not. I can tell the girls that are sincere and the ones, the force girls have never once ever acknowledged me. But they'll get on camera and say, oh, surely this, surely that. Right. But they get around me and they're like, I don't know if they're intimidated. I hear that. People are intimidated by me. I hear that from a lot of people. You're kind of a big deal. Yeah, but that doesn't mean I'm not friendly and I'm not helpful and I'm not uh, that I don't have a, you know, a, a soft spot for people. Right. Uh, it's just, you know, I'm most of the time pretty all business around the cars. And I, I just uh, I worry when I see them being nonchalant, you know, mm-hmm. you know, they're just I tell you, these cars could bite you, get hurt out there. It happens now. I, you know, we had the Selena's daughter got herself into a pickle down in Gainesville, and uh, well, she caused it. It was self-induced, and the car left, and it picked the front end up. That's what they do. They don't experience it because they ballast the front of these cars so much, so they don't pick the front end up. They don't know what it is to carry the wheels mm-hmm. for you know three hundred feet. So it happened. She got out of it, and then she stabbed it again. I mean, that was for qualifying. Mm. The right, the run is gone. It's for naught now. You had to lift. It's not going to get you qualified. What are you thinking? And uh, you know, they're out there, and they're like, "Oh, you know," and that's what bothers me. Uh, They license them a little too soon. I'm not saying her, but if I had to say it, I would say, yeah, license her a little soon. So I would guess, based on this conversation, you still have a pretty good passion for the sport. You still enjoy it. And the safety end of it, because very few, few people have gone in. And when I say gone in, big time, big speed and got in a problem. Uh, I'm not say I didn't walk away, you know. Um, most years ago, you know, in the 80s, uh, we lost drivers like that. It's just, it's, you know, it's part of the game. You have to be prepared for it. And uh, it's, you know, it's just, again, it's, it goes with the territory and it, uh, and it hurts too. <laughs> it's very, it's expensive and it hurts and it ends careers. So, in 2021, what do you see as your role, if any, in drag racing? Are you an ambassador? Are you just yeah. a fan? Or no, I'm more than a fan. But I, you know, when I hear people say, "Well, I've never, I've never been to a national," you, you haven't lived. Are you crazy? You haven't lived. Trust me. Go see it live. You gotta see it live. 
one of my biggest regrets so far is that you I've never been oh to I've God. never been to Epping. I got to go to Epping. Yeah, I wanted to go because I have this thing. I am in love with Northwood's Law. Like no one is in love with that show like I am. And I have my favorite, Kevin Bronson. He's the you know one of the game wardens. And I, I just think he's the greatest thing. Uh, I wanted to go to Epping just in case we could maybe invite some of the game wardens there for a day. <laughs> and uh, I tried to reach uh, the captain, the captain, yeah, the captain, and uh, sent an email, whatever. And he kind of brushed me off, sent me a hat and a T-shirt, and that was it. But I thought maybe I might go to Epping and uh, get a chance to get my picture taken with the game wardens. That would be a big deal to me, a big deal. I like the animals. Those, you know, those guys, they're good to the animals. Uh, that's important to me. I kind of uh, take care of the Animal Defense League and the ASPCA and all of that. Uh, that's my, that's my uh, next club. I had two chihuahuas that I had for 14 years, and I lost them, two. I had two other little dogs, one for 18 years, one for 15 years, and the two chihuahuas for 14 years, and I lost them all. And I don't want to go through that again. There are no, there's no barking in my house yet. I travel, and uh, my skippy dog, the first one that was given to me by a, by a racer, uh, I had her 18 years, never had a leash on her, and she went in the rig. She went in the rig to all the races. She had a couple million miles on her. Let me ask you, as we get close to kind of wrapping up here, and thank you for giving us so much time, tell me a little bit about Shirley's Kids. Shirley's Kids was founded by a wonderful man out of Houston, Texas, uh, Stan Holt, H-U-L-T, and his wonderful wife, Sheila. They're, They're door slammer racers, super stock. I mean, they drive these cars that pick the front end up three feet. Oh, yeah. I, it's just amazing. And I, but I would say to Stan, Stan, let me get, get you, you know, get you in a car. We'll let you want it. And you, you go, no. Well, you know, let you, you know, feel of like, nope. I don't want to go any faster. So he's, and I have a lot of respect for someone of his caliber that would stand up and admit that. But uh, Stan owns eight or nine wonderful Mexican restaurants in the Houston area, San Antonio, uh, some place, but there's, there's eight or nine of them. He wanted to, he wanted a charity and he founded this charity and he named it after me and asked me if I would, I said, if I would help him, I absolutely. And what, and we're going, in fact, I'm going to be in Houston the, the next Houston race for Shirley's kids. And what it is, is it's word of mouth. Uh, name of a kid will come to us. It's again, word of mouth. Um, uh, it has to be a kid that's remotely even, you know, has to have some tie to the sport in some sense, some tie, somebody told somebody and we'll bring that kid to the race, get to go up on the starting line for driver intro and uh, that's all fun. It's up on the pedis- up on the game walk, I guess. Uh, and all the drivers come out and they let the smoke go. And, uh, you know, it's all for show. But the kid gets to, you know, s- see all that, meet all the drivers, and we'll, and uh, get to see the race from a, a ringside seat. 
And then Stan gives the kid a check for five grand out of his pocket. Wow. That's awesome. He's awesome. He's wonderful human being. He's very, very generous. He does not pay me. I don't, you know, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be able to give back a little bit. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, when the, the hurricane Harvey, that set us back a year because it, oh, it really, he had the time of his life keeping his business alive. And sure. then COVID uh, was a hard hit for him with the restaurants. The restaurants, absolutely. Yes, he, yeah. but the food is so wonderful. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not chilies by any stretch. <laughs> no, I, sorry, chilies, but um, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, it's real, real Mexican food. And uh, the, the, the flagship place, I guess you call it that, the first place he uh, still is open today. And the same chef is there 30 years. Wow. What does that tell you? So Stan will drive up in his Bentley and Mrs. Stan will drive up in her Bentley. They are such wonderful people. They do so much for the sport, for uh, for people in general. Uh, come Christmas. Now, eight restaurants, there's a lot of employees there. I'll leave you with this. Stan provides every child a brand new bicycle at Christmas time. Now, how many bicycles do you think that is? A lot. A lot. (laughs) A lot of bicycles. So that'll give you an idea how generous this man is. He's just wonderful. Well, that experience for the the kids on the starting line, that's a good day without the $5,000. Well, yes. And I don't know what his his, uh, approach is going to be this year. He hasn't told me. He just called me up a couple days ago. He was in his car. Shirley, will you come to here? Absolutely. I'll be there. Okay, we'll get your first class. You don't have to get me a first class ticket. Oh yeah, we will. No, Stan, you got to reel him in sometimes. You know, you just I don't I don't need a first class ticket. <laughs> but that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm thankful that there is still a place for me in the sport. I I hate not driving. I miss it every day of my life. And uh, it's, you know, it's cost me two marriages. It's cost me my son. Not it, but it's, you know, all together, it's been quite a ride. But I'm happy I was there. Well, I, I don't I don't know that anybody else other than you could have blazed that trail and, and been on that ride. And uh, I think, amazing you know. It all. It's amazing. None of us realized what this whole thing was going to turn into. All right. So we got a couple quick just quick hitter questions for you, and then yep. we'll let you go. The, Same uh, ones we ask everybody. We vary them sometimes, but we're going to go with the wow. originals for you. Uh, <laughs> okay, don't throw any curves at me. No, we'll keep it pretty straight. Uh, what one vehicle that you owned do you wish you still had today? The dual engine car. Yeah. <laughs> the down long dual engine car. Loved that car. And it doesn't exist. They sold it, it changed hands a couple times and they cut it up trying to make a fuel car out of it what a shame now that's stupidity hmm. stupid sad uh, look at see if it's staring at me anywhere but uh no I, I used to have a large office with a lot of room for pictures and i had 37 helmets displayed they all went to dunbar's 
So everybody. And that's, that is an incredible museum down in Ocala, Florida. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's got the last pass car and the movie car hmm. and yeah. the helmet collection. I kept every helmet I ever wore, every single one. Oh my God, I did. That's actually pretty outstanding. Well, that's every cool. rep out there, oh, surely come and slide me a helmet. No. Yeah. And boy, am I glad that I stood my ground and I kept collecting them year after year after year. And of course, in the early days, we didn't get a new helmet every year. Right. Um, but I, every single one is a bell helmet. Every one. Because I like my head. That's a good reason to stick with it, then. <laughs> uh, second question. What is the dumbest thing you ever did in a race car? 74. Tucson. Toretto was there. Did a burnout, and it wouldn't go in reverse. And I look over, and two guys are going... So I thought that I thought there was an opening in the guardrail that they could move the guard, and I made a, and there wasn't, and Ivo left, drove around me. Mm. That was dumb. <laughs> that was really dumb. It sounds like you haven't gotten over that one. <laughs> no, it's yeah. uh, it's the only dumb thing I ever did in a car. <laughs> That I'll admit to, but uh, <laughs> I I knew my I knew my way around pretty well, and I saved my backside a lot of times because of how I did it and what I chose how I chose to you know to get out of a situation. I <laughs> believe me, they used to test me all the time. Finally, if you had a uh, long road trip to a racetrack you're driving down who do you want riding with you john john see the sad one sad thing is i needed him for a book i've never i did a tales book that was i want to write a book and john had it all right here and it's gone he would remind me of thing i'd go oh remember him mom remember what he yeah, that's right, John. I haven't thought about that in, you know, 40 years. Yeah, John had the best one-liners in the pitch. He could make, simulate, you know, sounds, talk to your car and things like that, keep you laughing. He was very funny. Yeah, upbeat, real upbeat. Shirley, it's been a life uh, full of thrills and not just for yourself, but for millions of people. Um, and we just, you know, we're so thankful that you took the time and, and spoke you. with us. And uh, I like- visit, I, I like to visit and, uh, and reminisce. There's so much, I, I have so much to sh- share. It's, I'm sure I can write a book. Well, I hope you do. <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're going to run for the hills. No, I wouldn't hurt the sport for anything Not well and and we vermonters are proud of you and thank uh you, you know thank it's it's our it's our pleasure to have you and, and thank, thank you very you. much i could go in my storeroom right now and bring out a piece of wood it's like this and it's red barn red and it comes off the barn where my uncle housed his cattle in the 50s i had my cousin long lost cousin I said, get me something, get me something. He went out there with a saw and he 
saw that piece of wood out of the barn and I'm gonna I'm gonna do something with it. But it's the real thing. That's but awesome. I'm, yeah, I just you know, things like that. I had some rocks from Lakeshore and uh just that that means a lot to me. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Thank you one more time to Chacha Shirley Maldowney for being very generous with her time and giving us the opportunity to talk to her. And it was it was an awesome conversation for us. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We did. <laughs> we really did. It was it was amazing. Um, and it was hard for us to keep our damn mouth shut for we recorded that what three weeks ago? Yeah. At least the time this airs around there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been, we've been, we've been sitting on that one. Um, Yeah. It was awesome. Just awesome. And thanks to Shirley and and thanks to um, muscle guy. I forget what his name was that that helped set up her computer. (laughs) And we uh, did not mention, uh, there's no mention of that. So you're, you're putting something out there that's giving. We saw, we saw him on zoom. Yeah, we uh, um, when we got ready, Shirley couldn't quite get the Zoom link to work, so she called in her tech guy, quote unquote, who was about fifteen minutes away. She said, "Just give me fifteen minutes; he'll be here." And this big fella came in and set it all up, and she sat down and said, "Hey, six four two fifty, not an ounce of fat on him." And we were off and running. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> she's, uh, yep. <laughs> she's old school, man. It honestly, it made me think of dazed and confused <laughs> when they're hanging out on the football field towards the end of the movie. Wooderson, McConaughey's there, and they're like, "Is Coach still giving that same speech about his mom? Six five three two fifty runs four five forty. Uh, so many of my movie references are lost on you and I can just, see no, no, no. Plays. I get that one. No, no, no. I, okay. I, I, I get that one. I was just letting you roll with it. <laughs> and I was transported back to that day with Shirley Muldown. <laughs> uh, but no, thank you to him for making sure we made it happen. And whatever he did came out, sounded great. Looked great. Justin was the only one who had technical issues. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I dropped out of the interview twice. Yeah. Um, we yeah. just kept rolling. Luckily she didn't, she's, she pro. did not care nope. that Justin dropped out. Neither did you. <laughs> like, okay. I'm freaking out here on the other side of the world. And like, Oh my God. Oh my God. I, I killed the interview with Shirley Muldown. We're never going to get her back. The tech guy's going to have to come back. And then I popped. That was my, with- my only worry when it happened. Yeah. Like in my head, I'm like, yeah, I finally get to talk. Justin can't talk. I'm just kidding. No. Uh, just kidding. But I'll no, my, action, my only worry was if he has to reset, does the Zoom end? Yeah. Zoom call end because he's the host. But no, it just said, oh, you've been switched to the host to me. Oh, is that what it did? Yeah. Sweet. You're now the host. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's you're, keep you're rolling. Because once you froze, I'm like, oh, God, it's going to drop. Yeah. I hope Muscle Guy is still there. (laughs) 
Oh, and it happened the second time. I was just like, oh, God. Yeah. And I'm just trying to quickly type to you where we are in the conversation when you rejoined. Yeah. Uh, That's kind of like what happened with with Brian Hoare when when your daughter Izzy came in with her bad dream. You were gone for 20 minutes. I just hit mute. (laughs) She cuddled with me on the chair in front of the camera for a while. Brian kept going, and then he never went, missed a beat either. Yeah, I went and tucked her in for five, ten minutes. Yeah. Just came back and still in the same question. So yeah, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I actually was just looking at the numbers um, before the before we we started recording, and um, there's a lot of people doing the the two part the the one and two on that. It's episode two only has like ten less streams. I know we were a little one. we were a little worried because for a while. Episode part one of Brian was about 50 plays ahead of part two. And we're like, oh boy, did that many people not enjoy part one? But now it's within like single digits of each other. So people are catching up on episode two. The race between Nick Sweet and Tracy Bellrose is incredible for us to watch. It's like. And once again, we are talking about things that you have no idea what we're talking about, but we get to see the number of downloads for each. And. Tracy and Nick have been going back and forth for the better part of the last month. Yeah. It's one play. As we record this, Nick is ahead by one play. And uh Dwayne Lanfear crushing is crushing. Uh Brian's first episode is 5 ahead of Dwayne and then Brian's second episode is 6 behind Dwayne. So it's 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 just like Thursday nights in the 90s. We're we're battling door to door. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And we are really going down a rabbit hole that you guys care nothing about. Uh, But I will say thank you because (laughs) we are just about at 9,000 downloads for the first 12 episodes of Uncommon Deeds, which is awesome. Really cool. We definitely appreciate it. And hopefully we have, we say it a lot, but more cool stuff coming. Maybe not immediately you know we have some cool ideas and plans for maybe winter time when we each have more time Mm. to kind of venture out into some different areas we talked about doing uh having some like youtube video ideas with different drivers and maybe different types of podcasts to stream in during our week so you get more than one a week sometimes and that might be sooner rather than later and just expanding in general as we try to build our first business together. Ta-da! We're business owners, buddy. Yeah. No money in, no money out, but well, there's so money out. Well, there's money out. Yeah, I guess so. That's true. But tune in, keep tuning in. If you're listening, five-star review, rate, subscribe. A long way. Yeah. Do all that stuff. It helps us it out. Helps. Big time. Like us on all the socials, follow us, all the things that need to be done on those things. It's Uncommon Deeds on Twitter and Facebook and Uncommon Deeds Podcast on the Instagram. The Instagram. Do you think people get tired of us saying thank you and all that stuff every week? Because it's, I mean, it's doing a lot less, but. Well, no, but I mean. When we hit round numbers like 9,000. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It is. We mean it though. I, I, yeah. You know, we say it every week, but we. You'll mean know it. when we, we stop really meaning do. it because we'll we won't be bringing it up. Like, oh, 
those guys, they don't care about us anymore. On episode like 48, we're going to be like, the hell with you listeners. We don't care. We're, we're here for us. That's not That's true. Not true. That's not true not, at all. Not true at all. And <laughs> tune in Monday off the on Facebook when we announce the week's guest. And yeah. we are recording this open on Wednesday, May 5th. The Shirley episode's coming out on Friday, May 7th. And as of Wednesday, May 5th, we don't know who next week's guest is going to be yet. You know, we got a yeah. couple uh, pokers in the fire. Is that yeah, the expression? We've got, we've got four or five contacts and people that want to do it. It's just lining them up is yeah. the hard part. And it gets a little more tricky now in the summertime with Devil's Bowl going, which congratulations on opening weekend. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was big. It was great. It was really cool. And I'm back to work full time and kids and so it gets a little more tricky and yeah we got lucky and lazy in the sense that we were about three episodes ahead yeah, and we, we just kind of chilled out for the better part of those three weeks yeah instead of getting more in the can so now we're gonna have to restock but that was, in fairness that we were it was you were right back to work and i was right you know, in the thick of opening the racetrack. And I don't think either one of us really had a whole lot of time. That is true. But, you know, but we, we had did, a nice um, plan. We recorded whatever the last three episodes all within in like three, three days. four days. Yeah. And then we planned them out. So Jason would go right before opening weekend. So we had to wait on Shirley, which was tough. Mm-hmm. And, and Taylor Moyer was right after his Martinsville win. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it, sense there was a plan, it. but. Then we, we were also the victims of our of our plan. Yeah, like oh wait, we don't have anybody for next week. This was <laughs> yeah. literally like two days ago. Yeah, we just messaged you like, hey, who are we supposed to get for next week? Who do we want? Yeah, and hopefully, uh, we will have a podcast for you next week. Listen, that I am sure of. We're not gonna we're not gonna give you any slouches either. No, whether as, as or not by we this will be. Podcast. Fully ready to tell you who by Monday at five o'clock. <laughs> I am not a hundred percent on that one, but we will have somebody for Friday. We will, we will have a show. Until we can always play the Ricky episode. We have a one of our test runs we did before we started recording for realsies. Uh, we recorded with our friend Ricky, who we talk about every two three episodes. Yep. Sometimes he appreciates it. Sometimes he does not. It's true. It's true. But he was, he's been great in terms of helping us out if we need to, to run tests. And we did a full test episode with him and we, we banked it just in case of emergency, like break glass, we, we play Ricky St. Clair. Right now. <laughs> yeah. And there would be nobody, not one person more disappointed with Ricky St. Clair following Shirley Maldowney than Ricky St. Clair. Yeah. <laughs> he would freaking lose his mind. Uh, but we, do we should have, do it. Now that, now that we talked about it, we should just do it. I don't even know if my mom would be ex- excited for that one. And she likes everything <laughs> we post. Yeah. Oh, love it. We'll come up with something. Absolutely. We'll have a show. It'll yes. be good. 
Yes, we will. Uh, until then, though, you, my friends, have been listening to Uncommon Deeds. <laughs>